This is the first day of this July-August 2019 seven-day session. And uh, while, uh, while we're all still getting settled here on day one, I thought I would uh, mention, a, a, a talk about two of the daily features of session, uh, which are uh, Taisho and chanting. Haven't done this in quite a while. I think uh, some of you will, this will be just a review and you know it, but uh, maybe not so much others. So regarding Teisho, we use the Japanese word Teisho uh, because we can't find uh, quite the right uh, English equivalent for it. It's not a sermon. It's not a lecture. A lecture suggests more of a uh, scholastic or, or uh, discursive, at least, a discursive presentation. Um, one translation I read of the word Teisho is uh, presentation of the shout. And uh, I don't do a lot of shouting in, in my Teishos, but uh, it, 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 it uh, suggests the non-discursive nature of Teisho, meaning uh, a, a, a true Teisho and the true spirit of it is, is um, largely, um, it's a commentary, maybe that's the closest English word, commentary on a particular text, but one that is not prepared. It's more extemporaneous. Um, sometimes uh, outside of Sashin, I'll scribble a few notes down so I don't get disoriented uh, and, and lose my turn the train of the of the of thought of the Teisho to keep it a little bit structured. Uh, but um, it would be contrary to the real spirit of a Teisho to read something that's been um, printed out ahead of time, as uh, so many po so many politicians would do, where they have a teleprompter, where everything they they read everything and try to make it look as though they're not reading it, but they're reading it. Um, it's it's intended as a presentation of the teacher's understanding and it's a it's presenting it to the buddha basically and that's why uh, i face uh, the buddha the altar the buddha figure on the altar i've learned through my involvement in our annual zen teachers meetings that uh, at other zen centers the teacher will often give taisho or they might call it a Dharma talk um, at the altar. They're 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 sitting right next to the altar, um, facing out, facing away from the Buddha, which is, to my mind, more like a a lecture or or a sermon. We used to. I did for I don't know twenty years or more. Uh, I followed the custom of Roshi Kaplow, uh, sitting up fairly near 
the altar. Uh, same position as when, uh, as, as my, my, my seat during chanting and, uh, facing, facing the altar from that nearer position. And then I thought, well, it's kind of nice not to have so many people behind me, sitting behind me. And so, uh, in more recent years, I've moved my seat back so that uh, most people in the zendo are uh, in front of me. It's uh, Teisho is not meant to be uh, spectacularly organized. It's it's has to be has to allow for um, comments uh, that uh, arise at the moment. This is what. What uh, gives it whatever liveliness it might have is is this open-ended uh, nature to it. Now, when listening to Teisho, of course, you want to maintain concentration on whatever your practice is while you're sitting facing facing the wall. So if your practice in the zendo while, while sitting at other times is a breath practice, then you do what you would do at, at other, all the other times when we're not in the zendo, which is just to try to become one with the listening to the teisho. What does that mean, this become one with? It's uh, another way of... Putting it is it is to uh, not be lost in thoughts, uh, to not uh, be separated from the listening with, by the intrusion of thoughts or getting absorbed in thoughts. So this takes work, just as it does any other thing, anything, anything else we're doing out, outside of the zendo or. If we're uh, raking leaves, or washing our hands, or taking taking tea, or walking down the hallway, become one with means just to notice when the mind wanders, and to, to catch that, and to to drop it, whatever the thought is, uh, so that there's just. Just the walking, just the drinking, just the washing, just the raking. It's just thoughts that um, interfere with our uh, just whatever, the direct experience. The uh, the truth is that uh, what what. Many people at first may think of as a beginning practice, that is breath practice, is no such thing. It never should be designated as just a beginning practice uh, because uh, it's, it's hard enough while sitting in the zendo, but outside the zendo, it's darn near impossible to maintain that uh, pure awareness and not be trafficking in thoughts. It's a very difficult practice to maintain. In the zendo, we've got the breath to follow. Uh, 
but uh, outside the zendo, we're not trying to hold on to the breath, but just to um, refrain from separating ourselves from whatever we're doing with thoughts. So in, in, in Teisho, it's the same. If, you're, if your practice is a breath practice, you're trying to just listen, just listen, purely listen, without going off into little trains of thought while I'm speaking. It's hard. Real Zen practice, this practice is hard because we're so habituated to letting the mind wander. And we our only, our only hope of just listening, in this case, just listening, is to be able to notice when the mind has wandered. And same uh, during keening, noticing when the when we're trafficking in thoughts, and same with every other activity. Now, with if your practice is a koan, it's a, a little different in that we want to, if possible learn to have awareness of the koan while listening to the Teisho. This is, uh, seems quite hard at first because it seems like we're splitting our attention between two things, the listening and the awareness of the koan. But then as time goes on and the koan uh, is assimilated, into the mind, as it sinks in deeper into the mind, then we find we can do this. We can listen. We don't, we don't need to miss anything in the listening, but uh, in the back of the mind, or we could say, or in the, in the hara, uh, in the belly, there's this kind of soft, um, maybe somewhat dim awareness of the koan continuing, the awareness of the koan continuing. But until you can do that, until you can maintain the awareness of the koan while listening, while not missing things that are said, then uh, the better thing is just to uh, listen, to do just the listening. And that's, uh, that's hard enough to stay right on uh, the words that are being given in Teisho. And it's... Uh, it's nearly the same as having the awareness of the koan. The key thing is uh, non-separation. That's the point. And if we're just listening, even if our practice while sitting is a breath, is a koan practice, if we're just listening, then we're not losing ground. The mind is not wandering. We're not getting snarled up in thoughts about ourself and our practice and people around us or anything else. Every once in a while, I hear that there might be uh, might be someone who feels that they can listen better while looking at me in, in Teisho. I think this is just a this has to be a kind of a beginner's problem because there's nothing to interfere with just pure listening uh, with the eyes down. 
and and keeping the eyes down is uh, as always in Sashin is a good thing uh, in that uh, we're less likely to be uh, caught in visual perceptions which then just spawn thoughts. Uh, this is why we never want to look around the zendo uh, during Taisho uh, because we're just inviting thoughts and inviting ourselves to go off into thoughts. And the same is true for chanting. Chanting, we don't want to be looking around, <clears throat> but to be just doing the chanting. And much of, of what, uh, what I just said about Taisho is the same if, with uh, chanting. <clears throat> it's another form of zazen. Now, the word zazen uh, literally means sitting meditation. The word za means sitting Zen means meditation in simplest, simplest kind of definition. So zazen is sitting meditation, but we we will often use it more broadly to mean um, any any activity in which we're we're using the mind in uh, a non-discursive way. That is, we're we're using the mind in this uh, stabilized, concentrated aware way. So we can speak of, more loosely, we can speak of eating zazen, uh, walking zazen, and chanting zazen. With chanting, let's let's start with uh, the posture, because uh, so much follows from uh, correct posture. With chanting, if because we're, we've got our vocal system engaged, uh, if you can sit in a kneeling position, the, the belly will be more open and may, may be able to uh, chant more uh, smoothly and easily uh, to provide the air for the chanting. So if you can sit in a kneeling position, what the Japanese call the seiza position uh, for chanting, uh, then good. If if not, then cross-legged is, is fine, too. And certainly sitting in a chair is fine. The key thing with posture, uh, as with formal zazen, is uh, stability, have a stable base, and... Uh, Alignment, sitting up straight with the uh, back straight, the spine stretched up, stretched up, including the back of the neck, lengthened, stretched up, so the chin is is uh, ever so slightly tucked in. And... Uh, to keep the, the head straight and not tip down, uh, you want to, if you're, if you're using a book, a chant book, uh, to lift it up. Get it up at least to your the chest level. And it's always uh, a little more respectful uh, to hold the chant book with two hands. 
it's more respectful whatever we're doing with our hands to use both hands same with uh, a tea ceremony uh, we don't need two hands to lift the teacup but uh, it's a way of to to use both hands is a way of feeling more fully engaged and in a more a more balanced way. Um, the other, using just one hand in a formal way like that for a tea ceremony, uh, is uh, a little bit, uh, not half-hearted, it's half-limbed. So if you need a book, lift it up. It is helpful in deriving the full benefit of chanting uh, to have memorized the chanting, to not have to use a book. But some of these chants are long, and uh, so use a, definitely use a book if you need to. But we, in, later in Sashin, on the last uh, uh, mornings of Sashin, we, uh, we offer people practice in chanting without a book. So we, we just don't hand them out in the last uh, two or three mornings. So there are no books. We, we do just the two shortest chants on those mornings um, so that people are more likely, everyone is more likely to have memorized them. Uh, and that there's something about chanting from memory, or rather, let me put it this way, there's something about not having to read print on the page that makes chanting more meaningful, can more, um, I think, uh, chant, more easily chant no-mindedly. And that's really what this is all about. Same as uh, sitting. When we're sitting, facing the divider wall, we want to uh, to withdraw from using this discriminating mind and reach into this deeper uh, level of, of, of what we call no-mindedness in Zen. No-mindedly chanting just means, uh, well, three guesses, the first two don't count, chanting no-mindedly, chanting without the mind divided, without thoughts, not giving way to thoughts. Thoughts will come in all right. We know this. As we're chanting, whatever we're doing, uh, we, no we can notice thoughts intruding. And when that happens during chanting, uh, the key thing, of course, number one is to notice it. And then number two is just sort of drive through those thoughts with robust, full-on chanting, just chanting, just chanting. And then a few seconds later, we'll notice the mind is wandering again, and then back to just chanting. And then repeat, repeat, repeat. Just as with sitting in Zazen formally, uh, to, to never get discouraged at how many, how frequently the mind, we catch our mind wandering, uh, but just to keep returning uh, to it.
even during chanting, if the if your if your practice is a, is koan is a koan, uh, the koan can seep in to such an extent that you can sort of be aware of it as you're chanting. But I think it's harder, and uh, I think it's probably not wise to even make a project out of that. Uh, even if your practice is is a koan, uh, probably the the best the better thing is just to chant. without concerning yourself with the koan. We want to chant as much as we can about the same volume as everyone around us. And you can kind of check yourself on that, but if if you hear your own voice more loudly than the people next to you, then you're probably too loud, and uh, vice versa. If you hear it, um, other people's voices more loudly than drowning out your own, then you probably could uh, pick it up a bit. Uh, I think it's better if you have to uh, err on one side or the other, it's better to chant too loudly because it's you're less likely to be doing it half-heartedly if you're doing it pretty loudly, but not too loudly. Um, in Zen chanting, the the meaning of the words is beside the point. And so, in in our chanting, we want the 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 precise enunciation of the words to be sort of subordinate to the uh, just the voice stream itself. I once heard Zen chanting compared to like a like a straight wire. Um, we uh, we're not cultivating any kind of emotionality while chanting. Uh, in that respect, it's a little different from singing. Um, we're trying to to engage with that that core of ourselves that is is beyond emotionality and so we have this sort of monotonal quality to to chanting without precise enunciation so to make a kind of a demonstration here uh, instead of the Bodhisattva of compassion from the depths of prajna wisdom. That'd be fine for just ordinary uh, speech or uh, or recitation. Uh, at the beginning of, uh, right before Teisho each day, we recite. We don't chant the Hakuin chant. We, we recite it. But for chanting... We sort of, sort of power through the words, the the precise uh, pronunciation of the words, and it's more like the Bodhisattva compassion from the depths of Prajna wisdom, saw the emptying five skandhas and sundered the minds that cause all suffering. At whatever one's normal pitch is, uh, higher or lower than mine. 
I'm going to find a, a pitch that that is in harmony with that of the lead chanter. The lead chanter gets us started, tries to tries to wrangle us all so that we're in some kind of uh, harmony in chanting. Uh, so we try to find a a pitch uh, that it may be. Um, higher than the lead chanter or lower than it, but it harmonizes with the lead chanter and everyone around us. The same thing is following the beat of the mokugyo. The mokugyo, that's the carved uh, drum, wooden drum that that looks, if you turn it on and look at it in a certain way, you see it's like a big fat fish. So uh, mokugyo means fish drum. And... Uh, we want to stay with the the acceleration and deceleration of the mokugyo. Every chant, we we don't start out full full tilt. We uh, we accelerate gradually for the first uh, half a dozen or more uh, beats, and then as we approach the end, the uh, mokugyo player slows it down gradually. And we want to stay with uh, him or her, whoever is playing the mokugyo. The, when you're in the process of memorizing a chant, uh, it's, f- it's fine to uh, take a book and um, let's say you've got the first half of, uh, I don't know, Prajnaparamita, you've got the first half down, uh, but then you get kind of fuzzy after that. Well, then see if you can chant with a book in your lap for the first half and then pick it up and and uh, use it as you need to for the second half. If you look closely at the mind while chanting, you'll see the same habits that occur when we're doing formal zazen, facing the divider, uh, that, uh, that we, can, we, can, we can chant well enough. We can actually, once we've memorized the chant, then we can so, sort of go on automatic pilot and chant just fine. But, but the mind is somewhere else. And that's, that's where the effort comes, is... Is uh, when we lo- we learn that we can we can privately uh, dwell in our thoughts while chanting perfectly well, what sounds like perfectly well from the outside, and uh, and you know no one will know the difference. You sound like you're just chanting well with everyone else, and and then you can take a little vacation and dwell in your thoughts. But that's not what we're here for. It's it's we want to find a way to not do that and to to notice when we're we're doing that and then drop those thoughts and just get into the f- chanting purely chanting it's a real measure of one's uh well it's maybe not exaggerating to say integrity integrity in chanting is uh do you want uh to Take advantage of the privacy of thought to to do that or not. Well, it's really the same with sitting. Uh, 
but with with chanting there's the split is more obvious because of the actual uh, vocalization of things and the vocalization is is what uh, enables us to absorb the truths of these sutras they are sutras. These are little tiny sutras that we're, we're chanting. And in fact, I think a lot of Zen centers, they just, they don't refer to chanting. Uh, you know, at uh, 3.30 we have a chanting service. Uh, they, they refer to sutras. At 3.30 are sutras. Um, but I think that's a little misleading. Call them just sutras. So I'm sticking with what Roshi Kaplow used is the word chanting. And it's by not thinking about the words uh, that we're chanting, but uh, getting beyond thought, beyond thinking about them, and just chanting them. That's how uh, we embody the truths in these sutras. Literally embody. When we're chanting, we're vocalizing. We've got the body engaged. We've got the lungs Engaged. We've got the belly engaged. We've got the lips, the larynx, the tongue is all engaged. We've got the body in there. And that really is, is what this practice of ours is all about is, is embodying these truths that we may very well believe in, good, but then making them real. And making them real means embodying them. I'm still thinking someday of uh, changing the last of the four vows, the four bodhisattva vows from uh, um, the great way of Buddha I vow to attain to uh, the great way of Buddha I vow to embody. Attain can, can be, uh, I don't know, a little abstract, but not so the word embody. And that's whether we've been sitting for uh, a week or a year or 50 years, we still have, we all have the same thing is to more fully embody this, this teaching, this Dharma. Well, that's all I can think of, uh, just from pulling this all out of my head to talk about with chanting. And now we'll just get started on uh, the text for uh, today and tomorrow at least. It's uh, one of my favorite. It's a, a book called Zen Essence, The Science of Freedom. And it's an anthology of different short half dozen pages of a number of different great Zen masters all from uh, China, I think, all Chinese masters, Chan, ma- Chan masters. And this uh, book was translated and edited by Thomas Cleary. I see from my notes that uh, although I read from this book last year, the part that I'm turning to now, uh, in the next uh, 50 or so pages, I haven't read from in, in three years. Still, to some of you, it'll sound familiar, but... Uh, these great, great uh, texts you can hear so many times, and each time it will sink deeper into the mind. 
And the first master in this, this collection is the great Mazu. The Japanized version of that name is Baso, B-A-S-O. But we can use, it's an easy, it's one of the easier Chinese names to pronounce, so I'm going to stick with the, the Chinese Mazu. And in the back of this anthology, there uh, is just little thumbnail biographical notes on each of these. So um, I'll mention, I'll read some of that. Uh, the uh, translator and editor, Thomas Cleary, says this about Mazu. His lifetime spanned uh, nearly the entire 8th century. Most of what is known about him is to be found in the records of his interactions with other people, where he uh, gives stories of sudden awakenings. Um, What I always remember more than anything about Mazu is he's reported to have had 139 enlightened disciples, 84 of whom became teachers, public teachers. There's some other stuff in here about him, but uh, I'm going to just keep it short and simple about this biographical information. So he opens up with uh, this statement, the way does not require cultivation. Just don't pollute it. The way. It's the English translation of the word Tao, T-A-O, pronounced D-A-O. The Tao does not require cultivation. Cultivation is uh, a translation of the word practice. Uh, The way does not require practice. So this is is a... a great reminder that the way is beyond practice. It's this. This is the way. The Tao. It's not gone when we're not practicing it. It doesn't. We don't need to bring it into existence. We don't need to practice in order to bring it into existence, whether or not we're practicing. In fact, billions of people in the world are not practicing the way, but here it is, there it is. But then he says, just don't pollute it. Don't contaminate this way with thoughts. Now, we can say that ultimately even thoughts are the way. But that's just half the truth. The other half is when we are dwelling in our thoughts, then we the way is obscured. The Tao is obscured. And that's what we, we emphasize in a training week like this, a week of Zen training, is uh, the aspect of not contaminating the way with our thoughts. He he asks rhetorically, what is pollution? 
And he answers, as long as you have a fluctuating mind, fabricating artificialities and contrivances, all of this is pollution. In other words, thoughts. When I read this phrase, I think of uh, what how some people misuse doxan, fabricating artificialities and contrivances, trying to rummage up something uh, for the doxan room where you don't have to just sit in silence. That can be quite unsettling, even even anxiety-provoking uh, for some people uh, in, in Doksan, just to settle into the silence without thinking you have to uh, come up with something. And so people will sometimes rehearse things that they're going to say or ask, thinking they have to come up with a question, question that reflects well on them, uh, or some something clever, or and, and this, of course, is uh, is really not in the spirit of Doksan. By all means, if you have a question, bring it, bring it in. If you think I can help, or if you have a, a problem that you are stuck on in terms of posture or breathing or anything practical, really, we don't get into. Doctrinal matters in Doksan. Doksan is not uh, that kind of arena, uh, but practical things. Yeah, bring bring a question if it's it's bothering you, or um, even something more broadly about some aspect of of sashin or practice. But uh, don't don't waste precious time in the zendo trying to just uh, contrive something to bring to Doksan. You don't need anything. I'm happy to see you uh, coming in with nothing. Even if you have nothing, uh, I might possibly have something to ask you or suggest, maybe something about your posture that I've noticed in the Zendo. Try to uh, go through the zendo a few times a day and and just see if there's anything about people's posture that I might uh, suggest to them. And then he says, Mazu, if you want to understand the way directly, normal mind is the way. Oh, this is what uh, the great Nanshuan or Nansen uh, said when Joshu Zhao Zhou came to him and asked about the way, he said, "Ordinary mind is the way." That's one translation, ordinary, but another one is normal. Normal is kind of nice because it distinguishes it from abnormal. You could say that our our dwelling in our thoughts is kind of an abnormality, really. The only we seem to be the only creatures in this whole earth that uh, dwells in thoughts. So that's pretty abnormal. And then he spells it out again. 
What I mean by the normal mind is the mind without artificiality, without subjective judgments, without grasping or rejection. Judgments. Judgments is a big one. This, I think, is is uh, very often the thing that has such an impact on people new to Sashin is discovering how many how much time they spend judging other people and judging themselves. Most people are not aware of that. It just goes on almost unceasingly. These little judgments of positive, negative, critical, or praising oneself and others, what we like about ourselves, what we don't like, what we like about others, what we don't like, can be really quite sobering when we first stumble into these judgments that are going on all the time. So what do you do when you discover that, you uncover these judgments? Well, the last thing you want to do is make a problem out of it. You just return your attention to the practice you're working on. And then when that has happened 500, 1,000, 10,000 times, and you don't get caught in them, thinking about yourself, judging, then uh, gradually they start to release their grip on the mind. And uh, what a wonderful, what a wonderful spaciousness opens up when we don't allow ourselves to indulge in our judgments. Mazu then says, the founders of Zen said that one's own essence is inherently complete. Just don't linger over good or bad things. That is called practice of the way. To grasp the good and reject the bad, to contemplate emptiness, is all in the, contri- in the province of contrivance. And if you go on seeking externals, you get further and further estranged. Just don't linger over good or bad things. It's the lingering that's the problem. It's the dwelling. It's the attachment to these things is that really obstructs us. They come up. Things come up. Thoughts come up. Okay, that, that is in itself. It's not something we have much control over or any control over. It, these things come up unbidden. They come up on their own. That's just old habit energy that has a kind of life of its own. So it's not nothing there to be uh, to make into a problem, but just how quickly, once you've noticed those things, how quickly can you get back to the practice? If you go on seeking externals, here is primarily speaking of um, notions, concepts, ideas about oneself and others, about life, about practice, about Zen, 
you get further and further estranged. And then he puts it a different way. Just end the mental objectivization of the world. A single thought of the wandering mind is the root of birth and death in the world. Just don't have a single thought and you'll get rid of the root of birth and death. The uh, Zen master Fuketsu said, if, if one particle of dust is raised, the nation is established. If no particle of dust is raised, the nation perishes. The world, says the nation, this whole samsaric world of suffering rises with with one particle of dust and (coughs) passes when we don't cling to any particle of dust, thought. So far, what Mazu is is been teaching here uh, is all sort of the theme of this chant that we do, affirming faith in mind. Well, our time is up now. We'll stop and recite the four Bodhisattva vows. I vowed above root Dharma gates beyond measure I vowed to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vowed to attain all beings without number I vowed to liberate Endless blind passions, I vowed above root, Dharma gates beyond measure, I vowed to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vowed to attain all beings without number, I vowed to Liberate endless blind passions. I vowed above root Dharma gates beyond measure. I vowed to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vowed to attain. <laughs>